Welcome to the On The Way podcast, a podcast exploring a non-violent, non-dualistic, compassionate faith life. My name is Dom Fay. Our two regulars, Sue Wilton, Peter Cat, back with us again. Thanks, guys. You're very welcome. Yeah, good to be here. And uh, we have a, a special guest joining us today for a conversation quite new for this podcast. Um, we are going to delve into uh, economics, but stay with us. Guarantee that that's, <laughs> don't let that, that zone you out just yet. Um, Reverend Gillian Moses, a school chaplain and Anglican priest, joins us. Thank you so much, Gillian, for making time. It's good to be here. Thank you. Do you reckon if you found a podcast that started off in the first 30 seconds saying they're discussing economics, you'd keep listening? Probably not, no. <laughs> <laughs> but bear with us because what we are going to touch on, I suppose, today is because it is an area we haven't explored much on this podcast. Um, I guess the, the, the way that everything in our culture is underpinned by financial um, give and take and self-interest and, and things such as this. Um, and, and it is very important to touch on. Uh, now, can you just maybe, Gillian, as a, as a way of setting this up, talk about how this has come across your radar? Sure. Uh, so I have no uh, expertise in economics at all, uh, but I am attracted to uh, feminist theory. And so when I heard about this book called Who Cooked Adam Smith's Dinner, which was a feminist reading of economics, uh, I was really interested. The title was fantastic mm. uh, and the book was a real eye-opener for me and it actually has got me um, enthusiastic about <laughs> economics and understanding it more. Um, so that's where it began, yeah. For those who, who might know, like myself with very little economics background, um, Adam Smith is obviously the, the father of, I guess, the uh, economy we know today, the way of... That's of right. He's the, the father of the discipline of economics, I yes. guess. Yeah. Uh, a Scottish fellow mm. who, interestingly, never married. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, a famous quote of his is, it is not from the benevolence of the butcher, the brewer or the baker that we expect our dinner, but from regard to their own self-interest, which is really the, the worldview that the world we live in today operates on, which is all about individualism, self-interest, um, competing and triumphing over one another. That, that sort of has become the way the world works. That's right. That's yeah. right. The, uh, the dominant narrative is that we only do anything because it's in our own best interests to do so. Mm. Uh, that's the economic theory that we all operate under. And... We express that best, I guess, by commodifying everything, by putting a price on it, yeah. um, including on our labour, on our time, everything. So I only do things because it's worth my while to mm. do it. That's that's the narrative. And I suppose even if there's not a monetary gain, there's still everything is commodified. Charity is mm. commodified because of the maybe PR boost or ego boost you that's get. That's right, from or it. it looks good on my CV. Yes, yeah, yeah precisely. So, um, and I know a lot of people listening probably have felt the, you know, especially if they are from a church background, have felt at some stage this discomfort with how the church has been somewhat overtaken, gone hand in hand with capitalism and consumerism. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, rather than challenging the system, became part of the system. Uh, kind of a, as, a, as a way to frame this conversation, we were just chatting before the podcast about uh, a famous speech David Foster Wallace gave as a commencement speech some years ago. It's, it's great on YouTube called This Is Water. If you haven't seen it, go and, and search it. But the idea is the story goes, two fish swimming along one morning and an older fish is swimming the other direction. The older fish says, morning boys, how's the water? And one of the other fish turns to his friend and says, what's water? And the idea of that story is that the most obvious 
realities of our existence are sometimes so inherent, so inbuilt, and so drenched in how we live that we kind of aren't even aware of them. We can't talk about them. We don't. We can't see them. We don't notice them. We just accept it as life as it is. That's but, right. But this isn't how life has always been, has it? No, no, not at all. So one of the the interesting uh, suggestions in in the book, Who Cooked Adam Smith's Dinner, uh, takes us back to uh, early human history, I guess. And this is how the the story is often framed, or the the dialogues often framed that um, you know when you're in the tribe uh, in that early human history you kill the mammoth and you know you share it with the people you like and you don't share it with the people you don't like you're competing with the next um, family or the next tribe um, for access to the resources of the area that that's just the way human nature is that we're all competitive that that's the thing that drives evolution, that drives our biology. Uh, it's competition for resources because everything is scarce. Uh, and, and that's the underlying um, subtext that there's not enough of anything to go around. Uh, so someone has to get in first and get it. And we're so used to hearing that that it never even occurs to us to wonder if it's true. <laughs> Mm. So, is there enough of everything to go around? I mean, you look at the newspapers or the, the social media and you'd say, no, clearly there isn't enough of everything to go around. Uh, as long as, what is it, the top 2,000 billionaires I heard yesterday own as much as the bottom 3.6 billion people in the world. That's, I think, the latest statistic. Well, clearly there's not enough to go around if we're all expecting to be billionaires. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think that that narrative of, of scarcity, though, which is what you're describing, mm. that, that there isn't enough to go around, is is what is, of course, keeping everyone anxious, driving the the spirit of competition. Yep. But it also drives this idea that we have to make ourselves. You know, that we were talking before about the um, before the podcast about about being the self-made person. You know, mm. um, the old myth of the self-made man. Um, and along with that, there's a, a lovely expression: "No such thing as a free lunch." Yes. You know, and that's one, like the water that we just accept as, oh, it's true. We have to work for everything we get. Um, you know, that's a tenant that seems on the surface to be just true. But actually, if you interrogate that even just a little bit, you know, before you even, or just as you took your first breath, each one of us got a free lunch. We were, <laughs> we were born and probably placed on our mother's breast. You know, we start life with a free lunch. Mm. And so let's have another look at that, that sort of thing which we just assume to be a truth um, and say, actually, is it true? All these, these presumptions that we have that you, you have to pay for whatever you're going to get um, and you've got to make your way in the world yourself. You know, what if, what if actually none of them are true when we've bought into a big lie? It is an interesting point. I mean, we, we even see, you know, and we've spoken about this a bit on the podcast, the effects of, of the world we're in today of, on loneliness, on, on disconnection. Mm. Um, and I, I can't remember if it was maybe Dave Andrews on this podcast or another podcast I was listening to, talking about that the very system we're in relies on a certain percentage of people being unemployed and being on benefits. Um, and we, we hate them and we treat them, you know, with complete disrespect and, and disdain, even though for people to live in mansions, the, 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 that narrative has to go that some people have to be unemployed. Mm. Um, and yet the people in the mansions look down their noses on them, even though it's those people who are 
creating the system that allows the people to live in mansions. It is a... I mean, when you look at it that way from an external point of view, it it does seem actually the antithesis of the entire um, way that Jesus advocated, doesn't it? It's the actual antithesis. Oh, absolutely it is. Uh, and it's not a modern thing. Mm. Uh, you only have to uh, read not just the Hebrew Christian scriptures but other religious texts of that time where wealth was considered to be a sign of blessing from God or the gods and poverty was judgment. So wealth and poverty are tied to your moral character, if you like. Uh, Good people will be wealthy, uh, therefore poor people are bad. Mm. Uh, And that justifies our looking down on them, on judging them as being undeserving uh, and helps us sleep at night because we must be the good people if we've got a nice house. We don't have to be a billionaire, but we've got a nice house, um, we've got a reliable car and we don't have to worry about Mm. whether or not there's food in the fridge. Mm. Uh, Therefore, we are good. And yeah. we deserve it. We deserve it. So because we deserve it, we don't have to share it because it's come our way because we have deserved it. Yeah. And the, the myth of scarcity is is one of those wonderful narratives the government keeps using to justify why we can't um, address climate change, why we can't look after the poor in other parts of the world. You know, Joe Hockey, I remember years ago, saying that we'd, we would get around to... Um, honouring our commitment to uh, foreign aid when when we were rich and we were in the top 20 countries in the world, a country that really, if, if it didn't buy into that myth of scarcity, that idea there isn't enough, we could do anything we desire. The reality is we have so much money that we can do anything we desire. And we've proven that by the fact that you know, we desire to make refugees suffer on Manus and Nauru and we are prepared to pay billions of dollars a year to ensure that they do suffer. We desire to do that. We've had the money. We were doing that even when we were crying poor. Mm. And so the myth of scarcity then becomes a political weapon. It can be used to... Um, as an excuse as to why we don't address things that need to be addressed. So people say, oh, it would be lovely if we had a health system that where the waiting list was X, Y, or Z. And we could actually do that tomorrow if we wanted to. But the myth of scarcity gets wheeled out and say, oh, we just don't have enough money to do that. We'd love to do that. We'd love to care for the poor. We'd love to, we'd love to make homelessness a thing of the past. <laughs> but we then, oh, we can't afford it. Whereas that's just a lie. We can afford anything that's important to mm. us, which is why we spend so much money on our defence budget, as we call it, uh, which has been protected from cuts and has been increased above the inflation rate because that's what we have decided is important. Not feeding the hungry, not um, overcoming uh, social isolation, not making sure that Aboriginal people are able to exercise self-determination and reclaim their status as the owners of this country. The myth of scarcity is always wheeled out to defeat those social initiatives. Mm. 
So, Sue, why do you think this narrative, you know, involving, I guess, self-interest and the myth of scarcity and all these things, why do you think they got such traction? Because it doesn't seem like they needed much enthusiasm to become the dominant narrative of the way, certainly, the Western world functions. Why, why did they catch fire so quickly? I mean, I think there's a long history there too, but it is always in the interests of the wealthy and powerful to remain wealthy and powerful is, is one thing I'd put forward and say that maintaining that and then and holding up that lifestyle in the way that the market does means that everyone else is perpetually aspiring and this, this human desire to, to mimic, to copy one another and to have what the other person has kind of drives it a bit. Uh, so I think part of that is, is is the you know the wealthy are staying wealthy, and um, to change if, to turn upside down the system to actually say well well what if we run on a different kind of economy what what if we run on a community economy which values everyone which says that sometimes lots of us get free lunches and at other times the, the rest of us might you know what happens if we go back to sharing well the the first pushback that's going to happen there is that the extremely wealthy can't stay extremely wealthy. I remember from my time, even early in school, you, you, everything's competitive. You know, who's going to get the highest marks, which will mean who gets into the university degrees. Then my time working in the entertainment industry where there are very few jobs, there's such a, such a cutthroat for me to get a job, others have to miss out. And, you know, it, for, uh, for another to do well will mean I'm under threat all of a sudden. And I noticed the person I was becoming after a year or two working in that industry, how bitter and jealous and how, how often I was just, you try to, t like, even subconsciously, you'd be tearing down other people because you felt their success was your failure. And it just, it, it can turn, this culture can turn you into a monster very quickly. I think we're actually trained in that from a very young age. Gillian and I both worked in schools and, and kids are trained from early on that if someone has an A+, plus, that means that other people have to, someone down there has to get an E, you know, mm. that that, mm. that rating scale, the bell curve, all trains us from a very young age. I mean, when I was at primary school, they still used to sit us in order of rank around the classroom. <laughs> yes. And so you knew very well that for someone to get something, you know, the others had to miss out. Uh, there it, it wasn't a sense of that was the myth of scarcity right from, from the get-go. The bell curve is part of that scarcity myth, the idea that you're only, you know, there's got to be so many people who are average and that there has to be, has to be, regardless of the group, that many people who fail. So I think part of what you're describing is, is, is fed into us from a very young age in our education system as well. I think there's a sense, though, in which it is also innate. So it is part of our human nature to compete with one another, to to want what other people have. Um, and that in itself is a neutral thing. Uh, we learn to be human by imitating others, by mimicking what we see others doing. That's how we learn to walk. That's how we learn to talk. Uh, that's why we want to learn to read, because we see other people reading. So it's not in and of itself a bad thing or an evil thing, but we're not very good at moderating that and at, mm. at choosing wisely what we will mimic. Uh, therefore, we're all programmed to want what other people have. And so whether it's in the entertainment industry or some other high-paying job, uh, that is what is considered to be worth having. Therefore, that's what people compete for. 
Uh, nobody's competing to be the guy who clears the fatberg out of the sewer, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Uh, he has no competition for his job yeah. uh, because who wants to do that? Yeah. Uh, but we're all competing for the things that society says in this iteration are worth having or mm. are signs of success. So I think that that desire to compete is always there um, and the challenge is always what are we choosing to imitate? What are we choosing to, to pursue? Um, that's, that's where we have freedom, kind of, but it's really hard to go against that, that social conditioning and that ingrained um, tendency. I think the um, I think also his, there's sort of some history in this. I think the uh, industrial revolution um, dislocated the way we'd ordered ourselves societally before. So, I think before the industrial revolution, there were two things in tension. One was that innate competitiveness, which is part of what drives us, and it's certainly what you know Girardian theology recognises that we are always competing with each other and but we're also communitarian mm. and so you, in the industrial revolution very before the industrial revolution we were in much smaller groups there was a more agrarian um, we lived in we tended to live in communities that had been long-standing and we had deep relationships within those and so we had some communitarian values there that actually counteracted the competitive desire. When we got dislocated and, and drawn into industrial cities, people were separated from land and from community and from family. And we also changed our focus from working together to grow stuff to working for the satanic mills, as um, Blake described them, which demanded different things of us and also um, monetized our work. And so the whole value system changed and our relationships changed and the people we lived next door weren't necessarily family and all of the communitarian stuff broke down because we were focused on something else. We were focused on the factory. I think part of that history that you're describing there, Peter, is the enclosure idea that we went from the, we've had a massive reduction in common ground, just actually the idea of <laughs> our attachment to land and our attachment to place has been dislocated um, and there's so much less common ground um, that we share, whereas there used to, when, when with the Industrial Revolution and, and I mean before that, with um, in, in feudal times, as enclosures came in, as that as the wealthy um, lord of the manor would come in and, and take the land and have ownership over that land and enclose what had been community farming, you know, that changed. Um, so that identification of not the land belonging to everyone. But actually, this is this is my piece, and you're going to have to pay taxes to, in order to, to use it to farm it, um, and that separated, I think, people from a sense of identification with place as well. Mm. I mean, it's an outrageous idea that somebody can come and claim ownership of a piece of land. But again, that's the water that we mm. swim in, because now we all expect to own our piece of land and that's the great Australian dream still isn't it to own your own piece of land um, but we don't stop to think how outrageous that is it's only when the the 
chair of Nestle uh, says that Nestle is going to own all the water, that we get outraged. But why should that be any different mm. from the land? I mean, surely it's just a natural progression. Uh, first land, next water. Soon they'll be charging us for the air we oh, breathe. <laughs> if they could work out how to meter it, they will. <laughs> they will, that's right. <laughs> but it, it is fascinating to me that, you know, as I look at the system, I don't feel like it's, it work, It doesn't really work for the people who triumph in it either in a weird sense. Like no, I, um, it doesn't. I've got, a, I've got a friend who once said that he feels like uh, we're hermits living metres away from each other, was, was his comment. He said, despite the fact we're living in such close proximity, um, you know, and I, I remember having this feeling when I moved out of, my family moved out of the, the home I'd grown up in. And I walked around the streets the night before we moved and I kind of could smell the dinners cooking and I could hear the families talking. And I realised I knew none. There wasn't one house where I knew, like I, I knew my neighbour's name, but that was it. Mm. And I thought on my darkest nights, on my greatest joys, these people have been metres away from me. On their darkest nights and their greatest stories, they've been metres away from me. We've been metres away from each other and we've never talked. We've never talked. We've never shared a meal. We've never sat around, you know, a lounge room late at night with a cup of tea talking life. Mm. This seems so (laughs) counterproductive to everything that we know gives us life as as humans. So, I don't know, even if you get your land, you get your block, you get your mega Mm. mansion, whatever it might be. You put a fence around it. (laughs) You you put a fence (laughs) around it. To keep everybody else out. (laughs) That's it. And, And you end up losing a part of your own connectedness as well. So... But still, I mean, I remember hearing Richard Branson in an interview some years ago. He was lamenting the fact there was an island he couldn't afford. <laughs> There's this one island. He said, I just, for some reason, they just, they, the, the people, I think the government owned it. They didn't want to sell it or he couldn't get a price high enough. Mm. And I think that goes into the whole thing that real estate agents always say, that everyone's dream house is always 10 or 15% above their budget. Yeah. You, it will always be more and more and more. And then you get to the end of that and it still isn't enough. It still isn't enough. So... The whole narrative is a lie. Well, most of the wealthy people in the world are miserable (laughs) and are worried about how to hold on to what they have and how to make more because they still don't have enough. It doesn't matter how wealthy you are, apparently, it's still not enough and you still have to devote all your energy to making more Mm. and to holding on to what you have. Isn't that the ultimate expression of the myth of of scarcity that there's even... Being a billionaire is not enough. Yeah. There isn't enough. There isn't enough to make me happy. I, yeah. yeah. Wow. <laughs> it's yeah. It's a and, bit and terrifying to look at it like that, isn't yeah. it? The whole culture that has we've just accepted as mm. our life, mm. as our way of being, mm. how broken, how fundamentally mm. broken how it bro- is. Yeah. That's right. And I think there's nothing. There's nothing weird really about the fact that we don't talk to our neighbours, because as Peter was saying, we have no connection with them, other than the accident of living in the same street. So none of us have chosen our neighbours, whereas once upon a time we did. Um, And we sat around the campfire or the the community hall or whatever together because our stories were so intertwined. We were related to one another. Um, These were our cousins or our grandparents or, or children. Those were the people that we were associating with Um, And that was why we were associating with them, because we were related by blood, which is, as we were talking before, um, where the myth of the individual breaks down, um, because the myth of the individual says the individual is the atom of society, 
the the smallest unit. But of course, uh, feminist theory reminds us that half the population is by definition divisible because women give birth to babies. Uh, And we have to remember that. Uh, We have to remember that we are connected to people because we are related to them. Uh, They're not strangers who happen to live with us. They are our family. Uh, And that's always been a really vital part of what it means to be human. Um, We don't exist as individuals. We never have. Uh, And it's when we cut ourselves off from those relationships that we do encounter the, the deep grief and loneliness, the, the mental deterioration, the emotional loss, uh, because we don't have people who know our story uh, and who, who smell the same as we do um, and who, who have the same eyes or the same funny nose. Um, we take those things for granted. Um, this is probably off topic, but I remember reading accounts from... Um, adults who'd been adopted as children and talked about the the deep grief they had because nobody ever said to them, you have your father's eyes or your mother's nose because they didn't. Um, you know, the family they grew up in was not the family they physically resembled, um, which is a, a, a terrible thing to think about, a, a really a profoundly um, grieving thing to think about. Uh, so all of that stuff, again, we, those of us who haven't grown up like that uh, also take for granted. But then we forget it in looking at history and understanding that, that we were with people because we were related to them, not because they helped us make money mm. or helped us farm the land because they were skilled farmers. You know, they were probably hopeless farmers, but they were our kids. Mm. <laughs> I think it's important here too to flag that we're talking about extended family. You know, I think we we have a bit of way of idolising the nuclear family in, in our mm. society, um, and and forget that a, an awful lot of the time with the very individualistic idea of of the nuclear family as being the building block, they've missed all those connections. What you're de- you know describing of the, the all the rest of the clan that happened to have the funny nose, or you know all those who used to come in and help. Yes, that was messy. Yes, sometimes it could be very difficult, and I'm sure many people listening have difficult family members that they're going, well, thank God I don't have to live in the same house with these people. But in that messiness, there was also an honesty and authenticity that our big houses um, and our small nuclear families with the big fence around the front hides. Mm. And there's an awful lot of stuff that goes on that is hidden um, and is allowed to go on and people can't talk about it because they live in these these divided lives behind their big fences. Mm. So um, problems of domestic violence, for instance... Uh, are much stronger and much more hidden because of the way we've we've compartmentalised and atomised society. Whereas I think where we had a more communitarian ethic and a, a larger extended family, larger neighbourly ethic, people knew stuff. Yeah. You know, people knew what was going on and sometimes they would pitch in, mm. sometimes they would get in there and help or stand alongside those who were having um, difficulties mm. and those people just aren't there now. Mm. And the village even became part of the family dynamic. Yeah. So, you know, kids kids in those days had, had the great gift of being brought up by a whole bunch of adults. Mm. So you might have had a dysfunctional father, but Bob down the road... 
who may even have become Uncle Bob. Um, certainly that was the case in one of the communities I've had the joy of ministering in. Um, Uncle Bob, totally unrelated Bob, but uncle by association, um, becomes a different role model for the kids. So, you know, I, I think the whole nuclear family thing is just as destructive as the individual thing is, and it puts incredible pressure on um, parents to be, you know, somehow you have to be the perfect dad all of a sudden, rather than the dad who's muddling through learning how to sort of nurture this little human being that, you know, doesn't come with an instruction manual. And um, with the gift of villages, there are other people who've done it, who 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 you can share the load with and and will introduce kids to things like sport when the one of the parents doesn't have fine motor skills and <laughs> can't get <laughs> can't match eye to ball all those sort of things the other kids other other people you know, round out the human experience and I, I think the the reclaiming of the village it's one of the gifts of the church of course is um you know, my kids grew up having a sense of being part of a village because of the Eucharistic communities of which we were a part. And, you know, they, you know, my daughter got married a couple of months ago and one of her aunties from one of those communities came to the wedding because this woman is such a significant part of my daughter's life. No blood relative, but you know, she's auntie, auntie Denise. Mm. And I think I think it's reclaiming that sense of connection and the, you know, in terms of giving it some sort of critique of economy is just the amount of work that goes into making us who we are and making our lives as rich as they are, that is for done for free, and not because of Adam Smith's idea of self-interest, but because people love people, mm. they do it for love, and they do it because. They want to. Which, of course, was the tenet of the book that would describe <laughs> that it is on the currency of love that, that, the, that Adam Smith didn't take into account the currency of love. Yeah. That's what I was going to say. The answer to the question of who cooked yeah, Adam Smith's dinner <laughs> is his mother uh, because he lived with his mother um, all their lives, I guess, and she cooked his dinner every night, not because he paid her, but because he was her son. And she loved him, and that's what you do for the people you love. So right under his nose was somebody <laughs> who was not acting out of self-interest but was acting out of love, uh, and he couldn't see it because it was his water. Yeah. Mm. Well, there, there is a the individualistic culture which suggests, you know, you reach a certain age, you move out, you go and conquer the world, and then you put up with your family at Christmas and maybe birthdays. That is the, the narrative we are in. It's not a very... I don't think it's many people are enjoying the narrative. Um, I know that in the US there's much more a culture that the moment you turn 17 or 18 and you're out of school, you're straight off to college, maybe on the other side of the country, which is less prevalent here, but still prevalent in Australia to, to some extent. I mean, I'm um, in my mid-20s and still living with my family, and I regularly get comments of what's gone wrong. <laughs> and I sometimes think, like, well, I mean, I, I understand where they're coming from, but perhaps something's gone right as well. Yeah. Perhaps something's gone right for this to yes. occur. Um, but it is, I don't know, this, this is such a radically different way 
of of operating in the culture we are in that it looks wrong by those cultures standards mm. um mm. and there's that famous quote that it is no sign of health to be well adjusted to a profoundly sick society <laughs> um, <laughs> which uh which i think i got courtesy of, of george tripp who's been on the podcast but uh, i don't know like julian with these insights how can you actually take that and live differently in a community that is so i mean it's it talking about the water like how can you swim a different way? How can you change your water? I think that's the, the big question, actually. And the short answer is that we can't. And yet we have to find ways of staying sane in the middle of it. Mm. Uh, so I can't simply choose to opt out. I mean, I could go off grid um, or my husband and I could go and live off grid somewhere and be doomsday preppers and, and all that sort of thing. But it only changes the world for us. It doesn't actually change the world. So it's um, an opting out of the, the system rather than um, overthrowing the system. Uh, and it doesn't mean it doesn't have validity, but it doesn't, the system doesn't care that I'm not there. What the system cares about is that the other... Um, seven billion people in the world are in it. Mm. Um, it can afford to lose me. It can afford to lose all of us. It would prefer to actually. lose you. Yeah. It would because mm. I'm, I'm not really playing my mm. part. That's right. <laughs> uh, so what is the answer? I, well, I think we, as Christians anyway, we are called to make community wherever we can. So um, Bill Kavanagh, who's a Catholic theologian, wrote a fantastic article with another great title, called Killing for the Telephone Company. And his thesis there is that nobody would die for the telephone company um, if they thought about it. And yet we do all the time, whether it's the telephone company or Apple or, you know, pick your mega corporation of choice. Um, we, we do give our whole lives over to them uh, and we allow them to dictate how life will be. Uh, and he says the church's role is to cut across all of that um, because the telephone company, the, the, the mega corporation, relies on us all being individuals and all struggling on our own and looking to them uh, for a saviour, if you like. So you take Amazon, um, Amazon and, you know, none of them are the devil. They're just the latest outworking of this. Um, it wants to be everything to all people. It, it wants to have a Lexus in your home telling you what to do. It wants you to buy everything through Amazon. It wants to deliver everything to your door. You never have to interact with another person ever again. You can sit in your little house on your little piece of land and Amazon will be mother and father to you. The job of the church then is to, to build connections between people, uh, to gather the community that's that's what we do we gather to community yeah. uh, we gather community around god's table in the first instance um, but then we have to build those relationships with one another we have to uh, notice who's not there and and ask how they're going we have to um, witness one another's stories um, do things together it, it doesn't matter really how small it is um, but the more we are making community with one another the better off we'll all be um, we'll be happier 
we'll live better lives, uh, richer lives. Um, we will find contentment. Um, we will love ourselves and therefore we'll be free to love other people. Uh, all those sorts of things. Um, but we have to remember how to be in community again. We have to learn that again. And I think that's, that's what Jesus was actually on about mm. um, all those years ago. I think that's what he was trying to do. He was trying to say, you guys, you've got to stick together. You, you have to befriend one another. Think of yourselves as family. Uh, that's why the family um, imagery is so strong in the Gospels because Jesus is saying that's where it's at. That is what's important. It wasn't actually about what happens when you die. It's about what happens when you're living in community now. And I think there's a lot, a lot of people would say, you know, that's idealistic. You know, there's the, the market does rule. That's what it is these days. And people will only act out of self-interest. And Walter Brueggemann um, says, cynicism comes always clothed as realism. Mm. And I think we need to have our yeah. lens always Hallelujah. watching for that um, because, you know, that idea that everything has to come down to a contract is so wrong and we need our imaginations and our creativity that we've been given to say, how can we imagine something different because it is possible. And, you know, imagine and, and Brueggemann again talks about instead of contract, let's talk about covenant. Let's mm. talk about relationships, not based on what I can get out of this, but based on love and respect and trust. You know, and let's engage working for a just, a more just society together, because we trust one another, and we, and there's that give and take of helping to imagine something different. I suppose it touches on one of the great philosophical questions, which is, are uh, you know, people inherently selfish and inherently self-serving, or, or is that not our base way of being? What were you thinking? No, that to I don't me? think it is our base way of being. Uh, I think that. Our base way of being is caring for the people who are our family. That's, that's where humanity starts, that, that we love our children. And that's what we hear in funerals. You know, when we, when we gather together to celebrate the life of someone, um, one only occasionally hears the story of the wealth making. Um, I've had the privilege of doing some, of quite a few funerals for really wealthy people. And I can only remember one <clears throat> where the focus for most of the eulogy time was on the wealth making. And I remember feeling at that time, when, as that funeral unfolded or the eulogy unfolded, that I was in great trouble because I usually base my homily on what I'm hearing. And it wasn't about a person at all. It was about a money making machine. Um, and even in that funeral, it was salvaged by the last speaker who stood there and just said, I loved you, mate, and went down and, 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 <clears throat> and touched the coffin. And suddenly I thought I had something to say because this guy said, I love you, mate, and then talked about how that guy's um, life had touched his life. Every other funeral I've taken has all been about the relationships. Mm. And people just talk about the characteristics that they appreciate of the person and how that person's helped them to become them true their true self and how they wouldn't be who they are without that person and that's what that's 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 the main thing we hear you know, all the other stuff falls away um when when it comes down to us telling the stories of our interactions and so i think 
I think most of us are live, living this dissonant uh, life where we know what we really value and the system, and we collude together to let the system do it, tells us that something else is valued. So we have advertising that's telling us that this product will change our life and make us better or greater or something. At the same time as we're watching a show that's actually about human connectedness and, you know, Home and Away only works because of the relationships that are in it. <laughs> you know, that's, what, that's why people watch it. They're not watching it to watch someone make money, you know. Yeah. They're watching it for human value. We know, what, we know what we like. We know what we need. I think we just need to do a lot more storytelling about why it's important. And I think that's, again, the gift of the church is we, we talk about our relationships and our friendships and the bizarre mixture of humanity that we gather around that table. I mean, I, I look at the Eucharistic community on a Sunday and I'm just blown away by the absolute diversity. You know, we've got Supreme Court judges and next to them is some homeless guy that's walked off the street. And where else are they going to find that level of community than share a cup of tea? Yeah. What a gift. There's... um. There's the popular board game, uh, the game of life, which uh, you might have come across before, which is obviously <coughs> you start playing with some friends and the idea is to make money, to get promotions, etc. And at the end of the game, there is a winner and there are losers. Losers of varying degree, but still losers. And it is funny that, that the creators of the board game were so aware that this is actually how we're living. Um, and then people happily play this game and accept that narrative that there has to be you kind of get your ticket into life and once you've been educated, if you're lucky enough to be educated, off you go. Are you going to be a winner or a loser? <coughs> yeah. Good luck. Mm. Um, it's sort of the approach. Mm. And I suppose this this narrative, this this reframing that we're talking about is saying that the the way of being does not require winners and losers. That's That doesn't have to be the way. No. Well, you know the original inventor of Monopoly was a woman and she invented it as a cooperative game where the players... <laughs> played against the board and then some man came along and claimed it and reshaped the whole game so that the players competed against one another. Excellent. I have to to say my shadow side comes out when I'm playing Monopoly, uh, (laughs) as my kids will attest. But that's an amazing story. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. wow. So that's what happened. She designed it to be a cooperative, a cooperative game, game where you played against the system to to all be better off and look at how it's turned out. <laughs> wow. Yeah. <laughs> and it's there's, there's funny. There's no real board games that are like that, are there? Everything's always against each other. That's, that's yeah. the whole thing. Oh, no, 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 no. Are they? Yeah. We play a game called Zombie Side. Okay. Um, where you've got a team of survivors who have to play cooperatively mm. to survive the zombie invasion. <laughs> yeah, we've got a cooperative game, but I've got an eldest daughter who's very competitive and she just sits there going, but what's the point? But it's interesting because I remember watching um, the, the Hunger Games, the first Hunger Games film, and remembering watching that, how much it felt a little bit like what happens at a year 12 graduation. You know, we were all sent into the world, survival of the fittest. You know, on a, on a metaphorical yeah. level, it is sort of like, well, you're not literally murdering one another in, in that way, in a, you know, like the kids are in the Hunger Games in a, in a competitive environment. 
you know, I'm, I'm coming up to in uh, a year's time my 10 year reunion from graduating from Ooh. high school. And I know walking in there is going to be a, a sort of a who's won. That's that's what uh, it's going to be. Absolutely. Who's won? Over the past 10 years, we got let, we got led into the arena. Now who's triumphed? Yeah. Um, and I suppose uh, a large part of all of this just has to be, you know, uh, making yourself aware like even daily, that this is the water that we are entering every day, every day. This is the culture we are entering. And I suppose, would you say, Sue, that's where some of these practices like, you know, we've spoken about contemplative prayer on on the podcast Mm -hmm. before, but things like this can help keep you aware, keep your eyes open daily that this is the culture? Oh, definitely. It can can open you up to a different way of being. Um, But I I think also that sense of um, what your, your control, sense of... I have control over my own life and my own destiny is something that comes through strongly when you talk about school leavers and and who's won, what have they done, what have they achieved. And one gift of getting older is is actually recognizing you know the older I get the the less control I realize I have you know and that there is actually a gift in being a fallible human being and that the um, drive to perfectionism, the drive to planning out every moment actually robs life of mystery um, and it can rob life of the gift of other people, which you don't know um, what others have to give to you sometimes. Mm. Um, when you're so busy planning at your own pathway, you know, you, you can miss that. So there's great gifts in being fallible. There's great gifts in not ticking all the boxes um, and in recognising um, and embracing fallibility, I think. A lot of this probably comes back to, I'm thinking, two specific podcast conversations we've had before. One with James Allison on mimetic desire, which if you listen to this and you haven't heard that one yet, go and have a listen. I think it it ties in very closely. But also our most recent episode with Dave Andrews where he spoke about the church being a recovery space, a recovery movement for people to talk about their addictions to, to money, to status, to power, to triumphing over one another, getting the nicest house on the street or the you know, the, the nicest car um, of, of all the school pickup cars or whatever it might be. Mm. Um, because uh, I, when the awareness is or admitting of a problem is always step one to, I guess, moving on to, mm. to some sort of recovery from it. Um, it is. And do you think that's what, what we, I suppose, listening to this is a different way of being? That is step one here, Gillian? Yes, I think it is. I think uh, waking up, if you like, is, is the first step. Um, Getting that moment of self-awareness, the, the aha, whatever it takes, to, to cut through the noise of, of the dominant system um, so that you can see something else, you can see differently. And I do, again, think we, um, we come back to the church and what the church has to offer in doing that. And one of the things I say uh, a lot at school is that we come back every week because we need it every week, because we, we don't get it right. You don't get inoculated against this stuff because you had Holy Communion once. Uh, you come back week after week after week because we're hopeless during the week. But for, say, one hour on a Sunday morning or, or in chapel at school or whenever it is, for that one moment you see what's possible. You, you hear the, the alternative narrative. You look around the people who are standing with you around God's table and you see them as brothers and sisters. And for that one moment, it's real and it is absolutely reality. There's no illusion there. And then we go away and, and we take our best intentions with us 
and you know my husband and I will often find ourselves yelling at the driver in front on the way home from church <laughs> and and we laugh we catch ourselves and we go we can't even do it for 10 minutes because it always turns out to be someone from your church you know <laughs> yes. uh, and and we muddle through the week mm. and, and every now and then if we're lucky we catch ourselves mm. not doing it the way we know we want to but then we come back and and grace brings us back the next time and, and for that moment, again, we manage it and we do it. And I don't think we ever expect to do more than that. I don't think Jesus ever expected we'd do it more often than that. But he said, just just be in reality for that moment mm. and, and live it for that moment and take what you can with you as you go. And I think that reality that you live in that moment can then transfer to a different kind of economy when you go into the week. When we th- talk about abundance, you know, there's um, so many. And when you look around the people who you gather with every Sunday, what they have to offer, you know, there's there's always when you move into any community, it's like unwrapping a present very slowly. You you suddenly learn all these things that people can come and can and and they have to share with you, and some of those things may not be tangibles in terms of with the dollar value. Um, but some of them, they're actually beyond dollar value. They're priceless. And you know, there's a, a story I heard of um, a, a small neighbourhood who went round and surveyed each household saying, you know, what if you had a group because their education system was struggling and if you had a teachable, what could you teach? And they found that on average, every single person had about four things they could teach a young person. And so when they multiplied it out, they actually in this one street had hundreds and hundreds of teachables and people prepared to do it. And that's, that's an economy of abundance, you know, and that's, and when we come in churches, what people, when we come and gather, we also go out, going back out into the world, taking gifts that we appreciate and we empower others to offer that go out and they are things that I think take economy, that it's a, a that economy of abundance can inject back into the communities around every church, every sacramental community. I realise that there would probably be some people listening to this, especially those who maybe feel burned by the church historically, that might feel the church is as big a part of this problem as any. The church they've experienced might be one they've walked into that has basically um, suggested, you know, following the teachings of Jesus as a way to get yourself up the ladder. <laughs> you know, you give more, you'll be blessed back. Or maybe they've worked in, walked into a building and as they've walked in, they've realised the cost it would have made to, to build this this theatre, this auditorium, this building, whatever it might be, could have fed people for, you know, years, you mm. know, and, and they become quite cynical that these people aren't actually about what they're talking about. This place is just as caught up in capitalism, consumerism, competitiveness as anywhere else. Um, I might ask you, Peter, what, what would you say to somebody with that criticism? Um, well, it's a legitimate criticism because we're all part of that. We all swim in that water. Um I think one of the um, the gifts that we do bring to church is the diversity of people, and we actually challenge each each other about the system. I think it's as um, Gillian was saying, you know, the first first step is about waking up, and we're in the process of trying to wake each other up. And um, the church is caught up in in the same system because we do puddle in the same pool, but hopefully we're also um, as we awake, we actually do make some difference to to that whole system, and we need we need the people who think 
that we're there. We are hypocrites to come and say, aren't you being a hypocrite? I mean, we actually, we actually need someone to call us out. Yeah. And we need to be open to being called out so that each person who comes with their criticism or their question is honoured as someone with a legitimate question. And that question may be the thing that transforms us. And perhaps that's... And they may also discover their own hypocrisy. Well, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, because, you know, it, it, it affects us all. It's a virus. It's a virus that is endemic. Yes, yeah. And as Gillian said, you can either um, choose to opt out completely, which suits the system fine because it loves getting rid of... Um, it loves getting rid of its critics. So if you think by just going off into the sunset, you've somehow triumphed well you haven't actually um, we all need to stay in the system and we need to struggle together to try and find the new economy which is only going to come as we interact with each other mm. we need the critics we need them to come and say this i can't see how you guys are living the new economy it's uh, one of the things that i loved so much when i came to this cathedral in brisbane the first time was um I think in your first message you gave Peter the day I was there, you spoke about how often you struggle and don't, you know, don't know. And it was the first time I'd seen humility from a real, from church leadership. Um, and I think there's a sense there, which is often that church leadership presents itself as super confident and the ones who figured it out now come and learn from the ones who figured it out. Mm. Um, so I suppose as part of this, it, it starts with a position of, you know, people like the three of you saying that we're on this journey of awakening ourselves and mm. yes, challenge us as well on this. We like we are not the ones who have the answers come and learn. It's a journey together. Would that would you agree with that, Julian? Uh, most definitely I would agree with that. Um, I'm not an expert in anything, not economics, <laughs> not <laughs> theology. Um, I'm I'm absolutely on a learning curve. Um, for my whole life. I'm always learning more about myself, uh, about other people, uh, about how we do stuff together. Uh, and I love that. Mm. I, I think that's what makes life exciting, actually, that it is a mystery, as, as Sue said earlier, uh, and it's this thing that will unfold before you if you allow it. Um, the system doesn't want it, the mystery to unfold. Uh, the system... Uh, wants us to think there's no mystery, there's there's no beauty, nothing. Um, it's all a grind, uh, and so you have to get through it the best you can, and and you do that by being better than others at the game. Um, once you start appreciating life as as beauty and mystery and grace and all those other words, um, you do start to realise that it's life is characterised by an incredible abundance. Um, there's no shortage of anything except money. <laughs> and even then there's not a shortage of money, um, only for some of us. Uh, but there is so much of everything that makes life worthwhile and meaningful um, because it never runs out. Uh, and, and actually I think that's, that's the nature of God, um, that, that the eternity of God, if you like, is, is not a, a time-based thing. Um, the eternity of God is, is that God is abundance, that there is always plenty, that you never need to be afraid you're going to miss out uh, on 
of anything that's meaningful because there is an endless supply of it. And I think that ties into the multiplication principle that we're talking about, uh, that even that dividing, that people, um, whether we're even, when I was talking about the teachables, that's something that multiplied as they started to do it. It multiplied, and that's the sort of economy that God works in. Mm-hmm. So it actually not only is abundant, but actually keeps growing outwards, you know, um, and, and, and dividing, you know, and I think that's the exact opposite to the individualistic scarcity narrative that we're sold and set with multiplication. Is, is what God's into. I think Jesus had a story about that that involved <laughs> fish and bread. Yeah. <laughs> so I suppose if, if um, you know, people are, you know, whether let's imagine from a, a year 12 student who's being told this narrative of they're going to head out after this and conquer the world and set their path or somebody in their midlife who is looking at a career change and, you know, maybe a, someone who's been a stay-at-home mum is returning to work and thinking, am I now re-entering this, this competitive, you know, marketplace? Um, what, what I suppose is the alternative narrative of how you can be in the world? And I guess to, to sum it up as a really, you know, almost like if you had a group of year 12 students in front of you who have all been fed this narrative of go out, Hunger Games-esque, compete, see who's won at the 10-year reunion. What is the alternative narrative of the life you can lead from this point on in the world? I read something really good the other day, and I can't remember now where I read it, but this person said, the question is not what you are passionate about, but what you are willing to be devoted about. So what are you prepared to devote yourself to um, as a whole of life thing? And... So what I would say to the Year 12 students and what I do say to our Year 12 students is find the thing that makes you sing. Find whatever it is that you feel you can devote your life to uh, and do that. And then it doesn't matter what else happens because you will feel more truly yourself um, and so life will be good. And, And all of that other stuff won't matter because... What will matter is as that you're discovering who you are and you're being that person. Uh, and, and that's all we're ever asked to be, I think. So, so what can we devote ourselves to? It's interesting how many people probably sacrifice that, what mm. they feel they should devote themselves to in their, their life story. Sacrifice sort of put it on the back burner because it's not economically feasible or it's not going to make them as much money. I mean, mm. I've, got, I've got a friend who for years has had this passion, this desire to be a teacher. Mm. He thinks they'd love the life of teaching, but they're quite smart and they're in a smart family and so they've gone to become a lawyer. Mm. <laughs> you know, and they're earning good money as a lawyer. But I just keep thinking it's only, surely it's only a matter of time before yeah. it hits them. Life catches up and says, no, <laughs> come back. Mm. Um, well, the thing is, if you devote yourself to money, it will never love you back. Yeah, yeah. that's very true. And, and work is supposed to be our outpouring of our our alignment with God as something that is creative. Mm. And people can be creative in just about any job as long as, they, as Gillian says, as long as they're devoted to it and they have a sense that they're called to it. So, you know, we talk about vocation in the church and sometimes we narrow that idea down to the ordained life. You know, people have a vocation, so they get ordained. Um, My view is that 
being baptised is the first ordination, I believe, in the four orders of ministry, the baptised and the deacons, the priests and the bishops, with narrowing focus as um, those orders develop. And for each of us to ask the question, what, to what am I called? Because I'm unique and I have a unique set of gifts. That, that is what, you know, how am I going to be a creative human being? Um, I think if you ask that question and then pursue that, um, then work becomes an expression of what work is meant to be. Mm. Work isn't about earning buckets of money. It's about having enough money. And, and people who don't earn much money, we can see what that does to them and the stress that it causes. So this is not pie-eyed stuff, but it's also understanding that um, when we are exercising that creative talent, then often a lot less money is more than enough money because we've found our true self, our creative purpose. Mm. And there are people who do what I would see as a job that doesn't fit, who are so good at it because they really do call, are called to it. Yeah. And that's the, that's the test. And some of them are people who did train as lawyers and then decided they were going to do what their heart was calling them to do and they took huge pay cuts and they've never been happier. Yeah. And that, for me that's the best story I hear of, of the person who had it all, um, in inverted commas, takes a sort of 75% pay cut and ends up being as fulfilled and as happy or more fulfilled and happy than any of their peers. And their peers don't understand them, except for they can see that they've got something that they hopefully want to. And what I, every time I encounter a story like that, it's always not just about them. Mm, it's always absolutely. that life, finding that zone yep. in that space yep. is a blessing to so many others. It yep. always flows outward absolutely. in that same multiplying. When you, when you come across someone who's in that zone that they are working for love, something they are devoted to, um, it flows out, and and so so many others uh, are the grateful recipients yes. of that. Yeah, I was just going as an example of that. We buried our dear uh, verger of forty years today, um, and the thing that he was remembered for was the way he interacted with people, and he really felt called to his job, which is why he stayed here for forty years. And as part of the funeral, it was noted that. He didn't earn much money because it wasn't a highly paid job, but that the family always had enough. And because he was fulfilled in his work, he was a really good dad. Mm. And so it multiplied out to his family who thought he was the greatest dad they could ever have. And it's because he was doing a job that he felt called to and he found fulfilling and it was all about the people. Well, and I suppose that's as good a framework of a, a different way than the compare, comparing, competing lifestyle that we can get. I mean, obviously, we don't underestimate the, the challenge uh, of how difficult it is to be differently in this world. And I'm sure all of you, I hope all of you, I hope it's not just me, feels constantly, you know, it has to catch yourself falling back into oh, it day by day. Oh, definitely, um, yes. But I think, you know, it's, it is about finding the practices that, you know, the church can certainly offer that can help you just catch yourself and say, this is water, this is water, this is water, and live differently. Uh, well, thank you so much for your time, Gillian. It's a fascinating conversation, um, and hopefully the 
people who decided to stick with us even with the economics warning at the start feel that it was <laughs> worthwhile by the end. But it's been a pleasure having you on. Thanks so much. Thank you very much. It's been a joy to be part of this conversation. And uh, we will be back with another episode of the podcast shortly. <laughs>